Mark chapter number 9 this morning, and I'd like to begin reading in verse number 14. The Word of God says, And when he came to his disciples, he saw a great multitude about them, and the scribes questioning with them. And straightway all the people, when they beheld him, were greatly amazed, running to him, saluted him. And he asked the scribes, What question ye with them? And one of the multitude answered and said, Master, I have brought unto thee my son, which hath a dumb spirit. And wheresoever he taketh him, he teareth him, and he foameth and gnasheth with his teeth and pineth away. And I spake to thy disciples that they should cast him out, and they could not. He answereth him and saith, O faithless generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I suffer you? Bring him unto me. And they brought him unto him. And when he saw him straightway, the spirit tear him. And he fell on the ground and wallowed foaming. And he asked his father, How long is it ago since this came unto him? And he said of a child, Oft times it hath cast him into the fire and into the waters to destroy him. But if thou canst do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Jesus said unto him, If thou canst believe, all things are possible to him that believeth. And straightway the father of the child cried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. When Jesus saw that the people came running together, he rebuked the foul spirit, saying unto him, Thou dumb and deaf spirit, I charge thee, come out of him and enter no more into him. And the spirit cried and rent him sore and came out of him, and he was as one dead insomuch that many said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand, lifted him up, and he arose. And when he was come into the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why could not we cast him out? And he said unto them, This kind can come forth by nothing but by prayer and fasting. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, Lord, I would ask you this morning to glorify your Son, Jesus Christ. Help us to see in the passage set before us the great need of salvation in the lives of sinners, the great need of Calvary in those that are condemned. I pray, Father, that you would just this morning speak to each heart that which would glorify you the most. I pray, Lord, that before we leave this place, we'll know that we've met with you. And, Father, that your Holy Ghost has had liberty to work in our hearts. Father, we love you. We thank you for all these things. We do ask them in Christ's name. Amen. As we read Mark chapter 9, I would say if we were to give a theme to the ninth chapter of the book of Mark, it would be the glory, the majesty, and the power of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, we didn't read it, but in the first 13 verses of this passage, Christ has been up on the mountaintop, the Mount of Transfiguration, with Peter and James and John. A very mysterious thing that happened upon the Mount of Transfiguration. It's as though whenever Christ was incarnate, God robed His deity in humanity, presented His Son in a way that mankind could comprehend at least to a degree. The Bible says that it behooved Him to be made like unto His brethren. Very unusual thing that happened with the incarnation, for Christ was still God. Do you know that when He was incarnate, He didn't lose an ounce of His deity? He was the same Creator that had flung the world into existence. He was the same Son of Man that had been in the fiery furnace with the Hebrew men. He was the same uh, soldier and captain and leader that had stood upon the mountaintop above Jericho. He was still the beloved Son. There wasn't an ounce of His deity that was lost. 
And yet at Bethlehem, when the Son of God was made incarnate, He also took upon Himself the form of man, was made in the likeness of men, and He took upon Him humanity. Now, not a sin-fallen humanity, not a sin-depraved humanity. We know that the Bible says that in Him was no sin, He knew no sin, He did no sin. He had no sin nature, but still He knew what it was to feel pain. He knew what it was to feel hunger. He knew what it was to feel fatigue. He knew what it was to feel thirst. He was tempted in all points like as we are. He is touched with the feelings of our infirmities. He knew what it was to be human as well as to be God. And something very unique happened upon the Mount of Transfiguration. He takes three of the disciples, he goes up into the Mount, and it's almost as though the deity of God begins to fracture the humanity and glimmer forth in all of the glory that he once had with the Father. And the Bible says that his visage was changed, that his countenance was changed, that he was transfigured. It literally means he was made glorious before them. It would help all of us if we could find some time in our life to get alone in the prayer closet and see Him transfigured before us. It would help all of us. You know, those burdens that seem so heavy don't seem as heavy when you're in the closet and He's being transfigured. Uh, Those despairs that we have, the depression that we face, and I'm not minimizing any of those things. They're very real and they're very valid. But oftentimes those weights that get so heavy, those days that get so dark could be brightened a little if we get along with the Son of God and see Him transfigured in His glory. There's great help to us in understanding that He's the Son of Man. But don't think for one moment that you won't be helped in seeing Him as the Son of God as well. And so the power and majesty of the Son of God is evident in Mark chapter number 9. But as we've read the passage that is set before us in these few verses, I'm keenly aware that the power of the Son of God is there, but I see another power that is working in the life of this young man. We see a heartbroken father. We do not know the social situation. We know there is no mother present in this context. We do not know she may have died, she may have lived. But here is a father that is attempting to raise a child uh, that uh, is uh, possessed of a demon, of a devil. His heart is to the point of breaking. His mind is to the point of fraying. He is at the end of his rope. He knows not else what to do but to come to Jesus and to try to get Jesus to help him. We see the fragility of his faith in verse number 23. Isn't it interesting that he qualifies his faith with an if? He says, if thou canst do anything, have compassion on us and help us. What an unusual pairing. I'm not even preaching yet. You just hang with me. What an unusual pairing of words. If and help. He's coming to the Son of God seeking help. That's why He's come. He has a measure of faith. He knows that Jesus can do something. But even in the midst of His faith, He finds some fear and some doubt. And He characterizes it quite eloquently when He says in verse 24, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. Can I say that anybody that thinks that they've got this faith thing took care of and licked and figured out and never struggle with doubt, never struggle with fear, they're doing nothing but lying to you. I don't care who you are, and I'm not trying to say that we ought to have doubts as to the power of God. We shouldn't have doubts. I'm not saying that we should romanticize or glorify faithlessness or fearfulness. We ought not do that. But it's just a stark reality that as long as we are robed in humanity and robed in the weakness of our flesh, there will always be moments where there is a struggle between our fear and our faith. I want us to notice a few things this morning, and I I don't even really know how to preach it. I'm just going to do my best to give it to you 
and then sit down and hush. I want you to notice, first off, I see as I read this passage, a power that breaks my heart. Imagine the scene that is set before us. You know, we sort of have a a, a very glossed over and a very cleaned up view sometimes of the Word of God. But imagine as this man brings his son, imagine that his face is disfigured, scarred with burns, scarred with tearing, scarred with the disfigurement of a tortured soul, and lays him down before the disciples. See if you can, him laying there wallowing back and forth. See the distant and evil look in his eyes as he mumbles, as he groans, as he lays there, just a broken and a tortured creature laying before the disciples. And imagine, if you will, how inadequate they must have felt. But, you know, as I look at this world, I would say that we ought to feel very inadequate for the task at hand. For we may not come across very many that we could say are so clearly and so evidently demon-possessed. Although I would say this, I think there's a lot more satanic possession and oppression in this world than the average preacher or the average book writer will ever talk about. I think there's a lot of things that we have a scientific answer for that really have a supernatural cause. But in this passage before us, we see this man broken We see this man without the capacity to speak. We see him without the capacity to think correctly. We see him without the capacity even to hear. What a hopeless case. I mean, surely if he could hear, surely if he could speak, he might hear the power of the gospel. He might confess his sins. He might call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. But all seems to be hopeless set before us. I think this power that we see is the satanic power that grips the life of the sinner. It's very clear in our text that he is possessed of a devil. It's not just an emotional problem. Now, let me be very careful with what I'm about to say. I, I, I don't dismiss out of hand chemical problems and emotional problems and things of that sort. I believe there is a reality there. I know a lot of preachers that speak very condescendingly about those things. But if you spend enough time, you'll find good people that know the Lord that struggle with some of these things. So I'm not dismissing them out of hand. Don't misunderstand me. But I, I do believe that we are an over-medicated society. I, I do believe that we are an over-diagnosed society. And I do believe in this day in society that we live in, there's a lot of problems that we claim are physical problems that are really spiritual problems. This satanic power has gripped his life. I want you to notice, first off, that it was a driving power. Look at verse 18. The Bible says, And wheresoever he, speaking of the devil, taketh him, speaking of the young man. Wheresoever he taketh him. This man was under the power, under the grip, and under the influence of satanic oppression. You know, I, I, we, we, we get awful disgusted and frustrated with sinners sometimes. And, and it's because we live in a world where we look for, for politics and for legislation to fix spiritual problems. Now, now don't misunderstand me. I believe we ought to have a, a, a godly government as best as is possible. I believe we ought to vote our convictions. I believe we ought to vote according to the mandates of what the Word of God and the standards the Word of God would have us to. But I think sometimes we have been drawn in this world of 24-hour news, in this world of constant talk radio, in this world of Internet news. We have so much information at our fingertips. And, and it gets to the point as Christians that we lose our compassion and our pity upon a lost and dying world. Do you know why this world behaves the way it does? Because this world is still in darkness. That's the way it is. Men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. 
I get frustrated like you do. I turn on the TV or the radio and I hear the atrocities that are taking place. And I get frustrated like you do. And sometimes it's easy to cry out and say, Oh Lord, why does the ungodly man behave this way? Why is the heathen raging? But the reason that they're raging is because they know nothing else to do. The sinner knows nothing but to act like a sinner. Uh, Satanic oppression and power has gripped his life. He doesn't know how to behave except how his flesh drives him to behave. This young man had no capacity to do any different. And we get so frustrated sometimes with lost folks because they behave like lost folks. And even most of us would confess that the only way for a lost folk, uh, boy, that's good English, isn't it? <laughs> for a lost person, that way, in case they judge my grammar on this, I don't know how much the Lord's really going to care about grammar when we get to heaven, amen? As long as we get the point across. Uh, sometimes we get so frustrated with a lost person, acting like a lost person, but even we confess that the only way a lost person can act any different than a lost person is to be born again by the Spirit of God, by the Word of God, and to be changed and to be transformed. The truth of it is this young man was driven by this satanic oppression. And every single lost person, they, they may not everyone be, de- de- I'll get it here in a second, devil-possessed. And I don't believe every lost person is. I don't believe every lost person is devil-possessed. I don't believe I was devil-possessed before I got saved. I was a little kid, so I was mean, but I don't think I was devil-possessed. But a lot of them are. But whether they're devil-possessed or not, understand that the lost person does, has no capacity to do anything but that which his flesh drives him to do. That's the reason that the Bible says there's none good, no, not one. That's the reason Paul said that in my flesh dwelleth no good thing. The best that a lost person can aspire to is to be moral, not to be spiritual. To be moral is to behave uh, in a way that's acceptable with the tenets that society has set forth to be that which is good and appropriate and acceptable. And that's all the lost man can do. Once a man gets born again, he then has the capacity in obedience to the Spirit of God and in obedience to the Word of God to behave in a way that glorifies God through faith and pleases God because without faith it's impossible to please Him. He has the capacity then to be spiritual, not just moral. You say, what's the difference, preacher? The difference is motives. The lost man does what he does because that's what makes him happy. He does what he does because it's what pleases his family. He does what it does. Uh, he does because it helps advance him in society. But a lost man can't do anything solely for the glory of God. He can only do it for the benefit of himself. God judges the motives. And so we see that he was driven. This was a driven Power, But I want you to notice not only was it a driven power, but I want you to notice it was a destructive power. What does it say? Look down at verse, I believe it's verse number 21. Look carefully with what our passage says, or verse 22. The Father, in responding to Christ, says, And oft times it hath cast him into the fire and into the waters to what? To destroy him. Do you understand that the desire of Satan upon every lost person and upon every believer is that of destruction? The thief cometh not but for to kill and to steal and what? And to destroy. That's his only interest in you. Oh, that we could make lost folks see. That's what really breaks my heart as I read this passage, is that they can't see. Uh, Don't you imagine the father crying out in frustration sometimes. If you've raised kids, you know about frustration. And don't you imagine that he cried out in frustration sometimes. Why can't you just behave? Why can't you just be normal? Why can't you just stay away from the water? Why can't you just stay away from the fire? You can imagine maybe in a moment of lucidity that that young man looks up at his father and he says, I want to, Daddy, but I can't. It's like something drives me to it. It's like something seeking to destroy him. I think there's a lot of folks. 
I think there's lots of folks we're praying will get back in church that need to be that that need to get in. I think there's lots of folks that we're praying to get in church that need to get in the fold. In other words, I think there's a lot of folks that we're praying they'll get spiritual and what they really need is to get saved. Now, I'm not saying there's no such thing as backsliddenness. We know there is. I'm not saying that there's no such thing as a person that gets out of the will of God. We all hope with our loved ones, with our family members, that they are saved. We hope that they are saved, that they're just out of church. But I fear sometimes that that's just wishful thinking as we look at people who seem to be in a cycle of destruction. They sabotage themselves constantly, and it's as though they're trying to destroy their lives from the inside out. It's no wonder, because that's what Satan does to the sinner. He takes them and tries to destroy them. Satan can't touch anything without destroying it. And that's what he seeks to do. We see that it is a destructive power. But I want you to notice that it is a determined power. What did he say? He said, we brought him to your disciples, but they could not cast him out. You know, we need to get it through our minds that Satan is not going to depart from the life of a person easily. This thing's going to take a battle. I think a lot of us, especially, we're at a strange generational transition right now. There's young people in this room that have never seen God move in a mighty way in a community. And there's older people in this room that have been in services where they've seen scores of people saved. And we, we have a unique dynamic generationally in the society that we live in today. And I think sometimes the older crowd that grew up in a time when God was stirring and God was moving, society was not as depraved and decadent. Church had a greater foothold in people's lives. And so many of you, you got used to seeing sinners get saved like Lydia, who the Bible says, whose heart the Lord opened like a ripe apple just being plucked from a tree. But understand, there will be, thank God, there will be some like Lydia, but there's going to be some like that sorcerer woman that followed them and followed them and followed them and persecuted them. And finally, Paul had to turn around and there was a battle and he said, I adjure thee uh, by the name of the Most High God, come out of her. And then even after she got saved, the folks that owned her came and tried to destroy Paul and Silas. I'm saying this, it's going to take a spiritual battle sometimes. It's going to take time. It's going to take prayer. There's times it ain't going to happen easily. And most of the time, if it ever looks like it came easy uh, to you, it's because somebody else spent a lot of time sowing and God spent a lot of time watering. Satan is not going to give up his foothold in the life of a sinner unless he is just broken by the power of God. He will do everything he can to try to strangle the life out of them. But then I want you to notice that it was a deliberate power. Christ asks him this question. Always pay attention when Jesus asks a question. You say, why, preacher? Because Jesus knew all the answers. If he asked a question, it's because there was something he was wanting to draw our attention to. And he said, when did this come upon this child? How long has it been this way? You know what his daddy said? He said, of a child. Of a child. There's lots of folks... and. We're, we're at the age we're raising ours. <laughs> and, and we got other folks in here raising them. And then we got other folks with, with grandkids that God's given you a big influence in their life. And, and great grandkids even. And, and nieces and nephews. And there's a lot of stuff that the world calls growing up that the Bible still calls sin. I'm not trying to be ugly. I'm not trying to be mean. I'm not, I, and I'm certainly not singling on anyone. 
But I am saying this. We need to understand that Satan is deliberate in the way that he attacks folks. And he won't wait till they're 18 and moved out to try to get a foothold in their life. Of a child, he's been like this. You see, Satan's ruthless. We look at that little baby and it looks so helpless and it looks so, so innocent and it looks so kind. Then it turns into a teenager and all that changes. Amen. But we look at that child and it's the love of our life and it's the light of our world. And we can't imagine that Satan could grab a foothold in their life. But he can. He can. The daddy said, since he's been a child, it's been Satan is after our kids. We better get it through our heads. Satan is after our children. If we don't keep them in church, if we don't keep them in the Word, if we don't keep them in prayer, there's no chance. I can't say it any clearer than that. It's going to take 100% on the part of mommy and daddy, and on the part of grandma and grandpa, on the parts of aunts and uncles. I mean, you've heard before that it takes a village to raise a child. You better believe it's going to take the whole family, and usually the church family too, to be praying, to be influencing, to be impacting their life. This is no time We're dealing with a different kind this day than we've ever dealt with before. There's a greater oppression today. There's a greater demonic influence today than there's ever been. There's stuff that when you was growing up, you'd have to go two towns over to a dark alley to someone you'd never met to get a hold of. Now they can pull it up on their phones. Now they can go down to the store. There was a time that kids would go out and meet their local drug dealer and get some drugs. Now they'll pull whatever's out of your kitchen sink and they'll begin to huff it and snuff it and shoot it and eat it and drink it. This is a different kind today than we've ever seen. And we're going to have to get deliberate about the way that we battle it. I see a power that breaks my heart. But then it's not all lost because I see a power that blesses my heart. And that's the power of the Savior to break the yoke of bondage and the yoke of demonic oppression. Well, aren't you glad there's a Savior? I know that's simple. I know it's not real eloquent. I know most folks wouldn't write a book about it. But I think it just needs to be said sometimes. Aren't you thankful for a Savior? God didn't have to send a Savior to be God. He would have been God if He had never sent His Son, Jesus Christ. It didn't make Him any more God when Christ died upon Calvary. But what it did was evidenced and expressed and showed His grace and love and compassion towards a sin-fallen man. And he's still doing that today. I see that the Savior has power to respond. That blesses me, man. That encourages me. You know why? Because this daddy comes and he's looking for help and he's trying to get someone that can get a hold of his child and trying to get someone. By the way, can I, can I just... Oh, boy. Can I just give you some advice? Jesus Christ is the only one that can make a difference in our kids' lives. It ain't the preacher, it ain't the church, it ain't all the books that you might read. I'm not opposed to those things. But we need to understand that they've got to have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ if they're going to turn out how they need to. Nothing can replace that. I mean, you're looking at somebody that had all the advantages. I'm being honest with you. Had all the. I grew up in a in a strong Bible preaching church. I listen when I when I started studying the Bible, I didn't have to straighten myself out. I'd been taught right. Now, I had to come to understand it on my own, but I didn't open my Bible and start saying, well, the preacher never taught this, or, well, he taught this wrong. Or, and I knew what Bible to open when I opened the Bible, too. I grew up in a good, strong church. I grew up in a Christian school. You know one of the greatest flaws in Christian education? 
And I'm not against Christian education. One of the greatest flaws is parents trying to, trying to subcontract their parenting to the Christian school. That's dangerous, friend. Because if, if God knew that every child needed a Christian school, He wouldn't have given them a mom or a daddy. He would have given them a principal and a teacher. But He gave them a mom and a daddy. I grew up in a Christian school. I grew up in a, in a good home. I grew up in a home that knew what discipline was, but knew what love was. I grew up in a home we read the Bible every night. But it still didn't change the fact that God had to make the difference in my heart and life. I could point you towards lots of kids that grew up with those very same things. And to this day, they're being torn and they're wallowing and foaming and gnashing and they're in the fire and they're in the water and their life is a wreck. Because only Jesus can make the difference. Only Jesus. And this daddy comes and he says, If thou canst help us, if thou canst do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Isn't that interesting? Notice the plea. If thou canst do anything, have compassion on us. And help us. Not if you can do anything. Oh boy. Not if you can do anything. Help us to have a nicer home or a better car. Not if thou canst do anything. Teach me how to cope. Not if thou canst do anything. Teach me how to control him. But if thou canst do anything. Do two things Lord. One I want you to love us. And two I want you to liberate us. And you know what the Lord did? He responded. He responded. He had just moments earlier been transfigured on the mount. He had been in talks. Oh, he had been in talks with Moses and Elijah. And aren't you thankful that we've got the kind of Savior that though he may be on the mount of transfiguration with his glory shining forth, though he may be in the heaven of heavens, though he may be in the company of Moses and in the company of Elijah, when a poor broken daddy with a devil-possessed boy comes and tugs at the throne room of grace and says, God, I need help, I need help, I need help. He's got time to respond. He's got power to respond, but I see he's got power to redeem. Got power to redeem. I don't know what all the disciples tried. If they was like a, if they was like Baptists, they appointed four committees and had three meetings and, you know, tried to get some kind of committee together to figure out how to take care of this boy. They might have paid his light bill. They might have bailed him out of jail. They might have given him a sandwich and a pair of shoes, but they couldn't help him. But the Bible says that when Jesus saw the crowd coming to him, you know why? Isn't this wonderful? Isn't this wonderful? He wasn't doing it for the crowd. He was doing it for the child. When he saw the crowd running before they could get there, he commanded and rebuked that foul spirit and said, Thou deaf and dumb spirit, come out of him. Now, if you're charismatic when you read that, it says, And next time he sins, you can go back into him again. If you're, oh, that was fun. We might do that again. If you believe that you can lose your salvation, then what Jesus should have said is come out of him and next time he falls, go back into him again. You see, if you're, if you believe in the church and denominationalism, he should have said come out of him and if he gets baptized, you can't go into him anymore. But if he don't get baptized, he's free game. Aren't you thankful for the eternal security of the believer? Because that's not what he said. He said, come out of him and enter no more into him. You know, there's not a single case of Jesus casting a demon out of a man where a demon ever went back into that same man. 
You see, when God makes the difference, he makes the difference. And he has the power to redeem. But then I see, you can imagine what it must have looked like. Here comes the, the, this crowd and they're running. And they, they see this boy and this daddy and they're gathered all around and they see what's going on. And you can see them kind of pushing through the crowd and saying, what's going on? What's happening? And they say, it's a devil-possessed boy. He's been since a child. Nobody's been able to... Well, what are they going to do? Well, now Jesus is here. He can make the difference. Well, what's going on? And finally it separates. And there that boy lays there lifeless. Somebody says, well, Jesus killed him. <laughs> you know, that's the problem with a lot of us. We bought into this, to, to this, this contemporary mindset that our kids can't handle the power of God. They can't handle the, the, the presence of the Lord. They can't handle a relationship with Jesus. It's going to be too much for them. It's just going to kill them. They can't handle strong preaching. They can't handle that. That'll kill them. And the kids reinforce it. But you know they always do that? What would a world look like ran by kids? My goodness. Everybody would live off bubble gum, cotton candy. We don't allow that. You know why? Because we know that a lot of times what they want ain't what they need, and a lot of times what they need ain't what they want. They say, oh, kids can't do with that old-timey music now. They need a rock concert. They need the they need the laser show. They need the fog. They can't handle that. You try to wean them on that old-timey music, it'll kill them. And they'll leave out of here in droves. You know, I found it's never the new Christians and it's never the little kids that have a problem with old-timey worship and old-timey music. It's always the adults that have got lured away because they didn't want hard preaching and got into these churches where the preacher has no interest but to try to build his ego and build his reputation. And then they get in an environment like that and it's culture shock for them. They say, whew, I ain't never heard a preacher talk to anyone that way. I never what where's where's all the seven eleven music? Where where's all the yes Lord? Yes, where's all that at? What's what's with that book? How do you sing shapes? Amen. Kids don't that don't bother kids. Kids are okay with that. And the kids that are hooked on all that contemporary stuff, it's most of the time because that's what their parents have pushed towards them because they're afraid that they're going to get out in the world, so they try to cut it off at the past and say, Here's something worldly, but not as bad as the world. They said, he's dead. He's killed him. Oh, he wasn't dead. Oh, the life may have left his body, but that's just what happens when a sinner gets saved. The old man's killed so that the new man can be raised. We picture it every time when we baptize somebody. Buried with Christ in baptism. Raised to walk in newness of life. There is a death experience that takes place. But that's the great paradox of Scripture. Is that the sinner thinks he's living, but really he's dead. And if he's ever going to live, he's going to have to die first. But then Jesus can raise him up to walk in in newness of life. I'm glad Jesus is able not only to respond and to redeem, but to resurrect. You know what people would have said about that boy? He's too far gone. Too far gone. His mind is warped. His body's broken. He's too far gone. It was just too much for him. He'll never walk again. He'll never be anything again. And you know, lots of times that's how we treat folks. You know, sometimes we get a little selective with our evangelism. We want to witness to the folks with the, with the right bank account or with the right color of skin or with the right tax bracket or with the right political party. And we start treating other people like they're second class. God help us. 
Aren't you thankful that God doesn't see any of those things? No, what happens? <laughs> I like this. He takes him by the hand and he raises him up. And can you see that young man for the first time? His back is straightened. There's a peace on his face. He's not gnashing anymore. He's not tearing anymore. He's not wallowing anymore. For the first time ever, he's seeing clearly. He's thinking clearly. And he's speaking clearly. I'm thankful God can take broken things. God can take things that are insignificant to the world. God can take things that other folks look down on and snuff at and laugh at. And God can use the small things to confound the mighty things. And God can bring to naught the things that are through the things which are not. I'm thankful God can resurrect a broken life. But then I see a third power and I'm done. I see a power that breaks my heart. It's the power of Satan. I see a power that blesses my heart, and it's the power of the Savior. But then I see a power that burdens my heart, and it's the power of God that was missing from the disciples. They said, we want to, but we can't. Or if there's ever a definition of the church today, it's that. We want to, but we can't. We want to see folks saved. But we can't. We want to have revival. But we can't. We want to see homes strengthened. We want to see marriages built. We want to see rocky situations stabilized and settled on the rock of ages. But we can't. We can't. Understand that in this passage, they really couldn't. Not because they never could, but because they didn't. They didn't have what it took, and they hadn't done what it takes. I want you to notice first off that this is an exceptional type. What does he say? Look at this language. He says, this kind, this kind can come forth by nothing but by prayer and fasting. There's other kinds that you may get by just handing a gospel tract. There's other kinds that you may get by just inviting them to church. But this kind, this kind is going to take more. Why was it this kind? I believe it was because of the demonic possession and oppression in the life of this young man. You see, the greater or the, the greater the abundance of demonic oppression, the more difficult to reach and to win. I'm not trying to be dramatic. But it's almost as though, especially for those of you that remember a time when things were different in this world and in this country, sometimes you feel like you feel like God's just opened up the bottomless pit. You feel like the demons and imps from hell have descended upon society. And certainly when you look around, you look at a world where nothing is making sense anymore. You look at a world where there's places in this, com- in this country that, that it's criminal to tell someone that, they were, that they're a man or that they're a woman. You're, you're looking at a country today where preachers are very soon going to be jailed for standing upon the Word of God and refusing to marry sodomite. You're, you're living in a world where we can't defend ourselves because we might offend those that are trying to kill us. And sometimes it's easy to look around at all the demonic influence and activity and oppression. Every time you turn on the TV, every time you go to the store, you see something that you feel like you ought to repent of, and it just feels like there's so much demonic activity. I believe there is a lot of demonic activity. 
the great culmination of demonic activity is going to be in the midst of the great tribulation period when that bottomless pit is opened up and when an army of of creatures is all that you can call them, uh, with the the uh, hair, <laughs> with the face of a man, the teeth of a lion, with the tail of a scorpion, with the body of a locust began to descend. You say, you believe that, preacher? Oh, yes, I believe that. I believe that. You see, what are you, what are you getting at, preacher? This is what I'm getting at. The closer we get to the end of time, the more thick that the demonic oppression is going to become. And we're seeing things today we've never seen before. You know that's true. We're seeing things. I mean, there is a level of evil and wickedness today that, that we've never seen before. A level of corruptness and a level of immorality. I mean, you've got kids growing up with two daddies, kids growing up with two mamas. You've got kids growing up being told that they just get to decide what gender that they are. That you, you live in a day where sodomy is being promoted as being normal. You know that's what it's all about. Oh man, I need to finish this up, but this has got to be said. You know what that, that's what that stuff in Texas is about. You know that, don't you? Don't you? It's about trying to, to teach children that it's normal to be sexually perverse and corrupt. That's what it's about. It's not, it's not about the fact that a lot of, of these sodomites want to be able to go in a different bathroom. That's not what it's about. It's about wanting to raise a generation of children that think it's acceptable for there to be no gender lines. That's what it's about. We're living in a day where we're seeing this kind Kids born addicted to drugs. Families destroyed. It's this kind. That's the kind we're dealing with today. We see it's an exceptional type. But I want you to notice in this passage that there is an exclusive technique. It says by nothing. Listen, it's going to take more. And I know that's not eloquent, but that's all that I know how to say it. It's going to take more. If we're going to see these folks saved, it's going to take more. It's going to take more prayer. It's going to take some fasting. Oh, we don't preach on that, do we? It's going to take more. The other stuff won't do it. All the programs in the world won't do it. I'm not against programs. We program our thermostat around here. I'm not against programs. But the program ain't going to do it. Christ is going to have to do it. And the power of God's going to have to do it. It ain't all, all the all the concerts in the world it ain't gonna do it. This kind can come forth by nothing. There's no other answer. There's no shortcuts. You know how we treat this thing. We'll do anything but that. That's our attitude sometimes about prayer and fasting. We'll do anything. We'll spend half a million dollars. We'll spend years developing this and developing that. We'll erect buildings. We'll build up monuments to try to reach young people. We'll do anything, Lord. The only problem is this kind comes forth by nothing but by prayer and fasting. We see it's an extreme technique. It's an uncomfortable technique. Here's the question. How much do we love sinners? How much do we love sinners a lot of times when sinners are in our own family? You may be one of them that could say everyone in your family is saved. God bless you. I don't doubt that. That's wonderful. I can't say that i got family members that if I get real honest about it, they're probably lost without Christ. And some of them I have no question about. They've made it clear that they're lost without Christ. And here's the question. Do we, do we love them more than we love that extra time in front of the TV? More than we love that extra time in front of the computer? I'm not against those things. 
I'm just trying to tell you that this kind can come forth by nothing but by prayer and fast. All the rest of the stuff's good, but it ain't going to get it done. Prayer and fasting is the only thing that's going to get the job done. Now, that's what the Son of God said. That's a hard line, right? Everybody says us fundamentalists. Uh, uh, I'll say it here in a second. I'm not speaking in tongues. I'm just tired. Us fundamentalists <laughs> say, oh, we're so hard-nosed. We're so narrow-minded. We draw such a hard line. Well, let me tell you what the great shepherd of Israel said. Let me tell you what the meat carpenter from Galilee said. Let me tell you what the Lamb of God that was slain for our sins said. He said this kind can come forth by nothing but by prayer and fasting. That's his words. That's his words. That's the only way. I wonder how serious we're willing to get. I know that's not real comfortable Sunday morning preaching. I ought to be saving that for the Wednesday night crowd, right? I'll be saving it for them. I wonder, I wonder how, how uncomfortable we're willing to get. I wonder how many hours of sleep, how many meals we're willing to miss. Oh, preacher, that's old-fashioned. Yeah. Yeah, and way yonder back there, Jesus was able to cast the demon out of this boy. And he's still able to. I wonder how much you love that child or that grandchild, that niece or nephew or that cousin. I wonder if you love them enough to pray for them, even when your favorite program's on. I wonder if you love them enough to fast over them, even when you've got to get up and go to work the next day, and you've got to work all day not have anything on your belly. I wonder how much we love them. I wonder how serious we are about it. You see, that's the only way. I hate to break it to you. I wish I could tell you that we could vote to start a program. I wish I could tell you that we could just build a bigger building. But this kind can come forth by nothing. You want to see them get in, you're going to have to do some praying. And you're going to have to do some fasting. I wonder how much we really love them this morning. How far we're willing to go.